Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 158 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Ernest Klein, author of the best-selling science fiction novel Ready Player One, which is currently being adapted for film by Steven Spielberg. Klein also wrote the screenplay for the movie Fanboys, about a group of hardcore Star Wars fans, and he also recently appeared in the documentary film Atari Game Over, about the collapse of the once-mighty video game company Atari, which was forced to bury hundreds of thousands of unsold game cartridges in the New Mexico desert. Klein's new novel Armada, about video game champs battling aliens, is out now. And now, here's our interview with Ernest Klein. All right, so we're here with Ernest Klein. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right, so you're known for writing these books that are full of obscure, geeky references from your childhood. So first of all, just tell us a bit about how you got so obsessed with science fiction and video games as a kid. Oh, I think I was just born at the uh, the perfect time for that to happen. Uh, I was five years old when Star Wars came out, and uh, I have a vivid memory of uh, the first video game I ever played was Space Invaders the following year, and uh, I'd just seen a re-release of Star Wars because that was when you know you had to wait for the movie to come back, and I was trying to was going to see it as many times as possible during the re-release in 1978, and that was when uh, Space Invaders arrived in America, and I remember I have a vivid memory of coming out of the movie theater uh, after seeing Luke blow up the Death Star for like the only the sixth or seventh time uh, <laughs> at that point, and. Uh, uh, and then going out in the lobby and playing Space Invaders, like waiting in line for my first chance to play this new game that had just arrived. And that was the first time I'd ever controlled anything on a screen or made anything, you know, uh, up until then, like television and video screens had been like a passive experience. And, and immediately I was like controlling aliens. And I, since I had just seen Star Wars, I like, uh, that was when my obsessions with video games and Star Wars kind of both happened uh, uh, at the same time. And I also, I feel like I was just part of that, I was so lucky to be born in the early 70s because I got to be part of the first ge- generation to have video games, period, and then also to have video home video game consoles. Uh, I got the, I think I got my Atari in like late uh, Christmas of 79, and uh, that kind of changed my whole childhood. Being able to play video games at home whenever I wanted and then getting a VCR changed my life again, being able to rewatch movies over and over again uh, and study how they were made and then record things off television and rewatch them. That was like a profound... <laughs> advance in technology uh, and then having a home computer when I got my TRS-80 and then being able to make my own video games and program a computer, all that, you know, was like part of my childhood. And I was part of the first generation to have any of that stuff. And it was kind of uh, this, all this technology was frightening to, you know, our parents and earlier generations. But for us, it was like our toys, you know? And so uh, uh, I feel like being, growing up a a child of of Star Wars and, uh, uh, and having, you know, I guess I was also part of the first generation to have cable television, uh, another uh, kind of amazing thing. So I feel like it was just I'm a product of my of the era in which I grew up. Huh. I mean, but so you think then you were just kind of a typical kid of your generation or do you think were you notable for being the biggest like would all your friends know you as the kid who was most into video games or most into science fiction, that kind of thing? Uh, Well, I was the weirdest kid. (laughs) Uh, uh, I mean, I, uh, I, I was, you know, I was a I was. I didn't realize it at the time because uh, I had, you know, I was the only one in my grade school, but I was like a stereotypical nerd. I was really interested into uh, in electronics and science and, and, and video games, which were a new thing 
you know, uh, uh, I guess video, you know, I would be one of the first video game nerds because I became a nerd for them as, as soon as they uh, existed. But it, for me, it was like, uh, I felt like the weirdest kind of nerdiest kid in my grade school. But then once all the school, grade schools uh, poured into the junior high and the high school, that was when I met like all my nerd brethren from the other schools. It turned out there were one or two kids from every school like me. We just had to to find each other. And then that was, you know, those are the guys that I ended up uh, uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons with and going to the local arcades with. And, you know, and they've, they've become my lifelong friends and inspired some of the characters in my books and movies. Well, and speaking of Dungeons and Dragons, I heard you say in an interview that your parents didn't like you playing Dungeons and Dragons. How much pushback did you get on that? I got a lot of pushback. I was, it was verboten. It was forbidden uh, because uh, my family was very religious. Uh, and, uh, and my mother had gotten a hold of this book from someone at church called Playing with Fire. I need to look this book up. I'm sure that I could get a copy uh, online. But it was called Playing with Fire, and it was just about the – it was like fear-mongering. all the dangers of role-playing games, all those kind of uh, – and she thought, you know, that the, the players – like the player's handbook that had all those spells listed in back that I was really going to try to collect spell components and cast those spells. And then it was meddling with witchcraft. I was meddling with powers. I didn't, <laughs> didn't understand all of that. So I remember, like – uh, which made it like, you know, that was part of the appeal of Dungeons and Dragons. It was almost like heavy metal, you know, and backmasking and like this thing you're not supposed to mess with, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, was made it even more appealing to me. I remember sneaking my Dungeons and Dragons books like in and out of the house, like under my, under my jacket. Uh, instead of, <laughs> instead of doing, instead of doing drugs, I was sneaking, uh, sneaking RPG supplements. <laughs> And then were you also, you mentioned you were programming computer games. Were you also writing any sort of fiction at that time? No, you know, I, uh, I remember writing, like, some of the first things I ever wrote were, like, skits for my Boy Scout troop to perform at, like, campfires and stuff. But I don't, you know, and I would write short stories for school, but it wasn't until, like, high school that I started to, uh, like, sit down to, to try and write things. But it always ended up being what I was best at in school uh, and, and uh, that I was able to... Uh, be funny and also be funny on paper. I remember, you know, when you're a kid, you kind of look for what gets you attention or, you know, uh, impresses other people. And that was always what I was the best at. So I was drawn to drawn to doing it. And did you ever try submitting stories to any of the science fiction magazines or anything like that? Uh, I did not. You know, I um, my first published fiction that wasn't in like a school, you know, literary magazine uh, uh, is Ready Player One. So um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm lucky. I have a good track record my first real screenplay uh that i ever wrote you know that wasn't fan fiction uh was fanboys and it got made to a movie so uh, i've been really lucky in in both i mean fanboys but fanboys took 10 years to get made and got heavily you know uh warped in the process so i had much better luck with uh uh i started out wanting to be a screenwriter that was my first uh goal as a writer was to write for the movies and then i actually got a movie made and uh it was so disheartening uh, to have my like work, you know, warped and mutilated uh, to the point where there are scenes still in the movie that kind of make fun of the characters or or make fun of Star Wars fans. Uh, so that it, you know, I'm still proud of the movie because it's impossible. It's so unlikely that it you know ever would have gotten made. It's a miracle. But uh, but when I see it, I just see all the things that they change and things that could have been better, but were kind of out of my control. So that made me want to try my hand at fiction. I'd always wanted to. Uh, try writing a novel, but that really inspired me to sit down and try to do it uh, and stop writing screenplays uh, just because I knew that uh, I knew the truth now about screenwriting is that you have no control over your characters. 
Well, for the people who who aren't disillusioned with screenwriting yet, could you just say a bit about how to get? I'm just curious. How do you go from you're just some average guy and you write the screenplay, right? How does it actually end up getting made into a movie? Yeah. Well, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, a completely disillusioned. I still, I'm working on the screenplay for Armada right now. I just, I'm, I, I think starting out as a screenwriter uh, and just trying to get scripts made, like you're not the low man in the totem pole. You're like the part of the totem pole that's in the ground. You know, <laughs> it's like they have no, res- no respect because the script is just a blueprint, you know, but, but once you, you know, now that I'm adapting, adapting your own novel is something completely different because the story already exists, you know, uh, the way that you intended and will always exist. Whereas in a screenplay, it's likely no one will ever uh, 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 see your work. So I, you know, I don't know. I have a, my screenwriting career has a new lease on life because now I uh, will always write the story in fiction first, and then the story can have its own life. And you don't, you know, I think that's part of the frustrating thing for a lot of screenwriters is uh, just no one ever gets to see your story as you intended it. But uh, uh, for me, the path the fanboy is getting made. I was really inspired by uh, Kevin Smith and guys like uh, Richard Linklater and and Robert Rodriguez, guys who just use the resources that they had very limited and to tell, you know, to make a, a, their first movie, a small little movie that then, that, and that's how they launched their film career. And uh, I think fanboys, you know, that it has that title because it's a simple title, like, like clerks or uh, slacker or El Mariachi. I was trying to do it like a small story and I thought it could be dialogue driven and, and uh, showcase my writing and that I could make it myself like here in Austin, Texas, where I live. So that's what I, that's what I tried to do. But fanboys, um, uh, uh, the one thing that I did, uh, that kind of changed everything is I wrote a part for my friend, Harry Knowles to, to play himself. Harry, uh, at the time was, had just found that ain't it cool news. And it was kind of the first movie, you know, uh, movie news, uh, fan website. Um, and for a while he was like sitting in, you know, uh, with Roger Ebert at the movies and he had become like a powerful, uh, film critic just by, you know, through his own enthusiasm, just starting up a movie website and letting his enthusiasm run wild and share it with other people. And it was uh, a part of what made Austin a cool movie town was that Harry lived here and the Alamo Draft House had just opened and uh, uh, which is like movie movie geek heaven. So uh, I wrote a part and it occurred to me that if you were going to break into Skywalker Ranch, uh, Fanboys is about a group of uh, uh, friends in Ohio who find out one of their number is dying and that he's not going to live to see episode one, which he's been waiting his whole life, 17 years to see. And so, uh, they decide to go on this road trip across the country, uh, to break into Skywalker Ranch and try to see it early. And, uh, and it occurred to me if you were going to do this, that you would, uh, uh, and you needed the blueprints and key cards and things like that, that Harry Knowles is actually like one of the guys that you would go to because he had access to all that stuff. People were, I remember seeing the episode one script, uh, reading it at his house, like six months before the movie came out and he had like the score and people were always leaking stuff to him. And I, and, uh, and I remember he actually did have blueprints of Skywalker ranch. He's like, I actually have, this. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I wrote him into the script, uh, to kind of be like one of the, the wizard alongside the road that gives them the magic talisman that helps them on their, on their adventure. Uh, and Harry read the script, uh, to see if he would, you know, agree to do it. And he loved it so much that he, he read it in one sitting and he got up and wrote this really glowing review of it on his website. How it was like the best script he'd ever read about what it meant to be a fanboy or be a fan of something and how that love of some facet of pop culture can like bind you together with your friends. Uh, and he posted this long review, which is still buried on his website from like way back in like 1998, I think. And, uh, and everybody in Hollywood read, reads his website every day. So like suddenly my project, even though it was just me and I had just kind of quit my tech support job and bought a van and 
borrowed a digital camera and I was going to try to make the movie with no no money and no idea what I was doing. But just by trying to do it, uh, you know, I ended up getting Harry's attention. And then Harry kind of his enthusiasm for the script got the attention of Hollywood. And then Hollywood suddenly was interested in, in my script. And that was how it ended up getting getting optioned by a young producer named Matt Pinciaro. And he uh, helped me uh, develop it and shop it around Hollywood. And it took like six, seven years. But eventually the script uh, uh, found its way to Kevin Spacey, who had just started his own production company, Trigger Street Productions. And he read the script and loved it and decided to become a producer. And that kind of made it, uh, that changed everything because up until then they couldn't ask for George Lucas's permission to make a movie about breaking into his house and <laughs> stealing his stuff. Uh, uh, you couldn't even, you know, there's a whole group of people in place, uh, the, uh, to make sure he doesn't get stupid phone calls like that. <laughs> it, uh, uh, but Kevin Spacey was able to just make that, call, you know, call him up. And, uh, I think George Lucas in that interview, he thought Kevin was calling him about being in one of the, uh, one of his movies. Uh, but it, uh, but he told him about, you know, that he was producing this little Star Wars movie and, and asking him for permission and told him it was a, you know, an homage to Star Wars and Star Wars fandom and that whole kind of time of growing up, you know, and having Star Wars be something that, you know, like Harry Potter or Doctor Who or whatever it is that you love that like kind of bonds you together with your friends. And so he said yes and let us use Star Wars and all the Star Wars license and, uh, and also shoot at Skywalker Ranch. So. Uh, that, but that happened, you know, like nine, eight, nine years after I had read the, after I'd written the script. And then, and then after the movie was finished, it took two, like two more years to, to, uh, come out because in post production, there was a lot of fighting with the, with the producers over, uh, and between the producers and the, uh, Weinstein company who put up about oh, cha- making changes to the plot and changing the whole dying friend plot line and excising it and, it just went on. I wasn't even sure if the movie would ever come out in theaters. I thought it might end up going direct to video. Uh, and we missed like the 30th anniversary of Star Wars, but it, it, it finally came out in 2009, almost like 10 years to the day after I wrote, finished the first draft. And it had Princess Leia and Lando and, you know, Captain Kirk and Darth Maul are all make cameos in it. It's just insane that, you know, Kevin Smith is in it. And, uh, it's, uh, it just blows my mind that that movie ever got made. And it started as just, you know, my idea for a little fan film, but still that process of, of having it happen and seeing what it's really like for a screenwriter, unless you're a writer, director, producer who also finances your own movie, then at some point you have to, it's filmmaking is very collaborative, uh, process and people, you know, and if you're spending millions of dollars to make a movie, it's a product that, that they want that product to sell to as many people as possible, which is not always necessarily like the goal of art. You just have a lot more control and a lot more freedom writing fiction than you do uh, screenwriting, but you don't uh, reach as big an audience. You know, if you manage to get a movie made, then, you know, uh, a movie like a lot, as you know, you know, a lot of people won't even read a book until they find out there's going to be a movie and then they'll, uh, and then that will uh, uh, urge them to read the book, maybe because they don't want to lose that chance of, of experiencing the book for themselves without imagining the actors' faces on the characters. Hmm. Well, so tell us about so so yeah. So you you thought the fanboys it didn't really stay true to your vision, and you wanted to you're like oh if I write a book I can have control and I can make it as geeky as I want. So tell us about the process of how did you go? I mean now you have to start all over as a fiction writer, right? What was the process of did you get an agent? How did you write the this <laughs> yeah, novel? I mean, I, how did that all happen? Well, I didn't feel like I was starting all over. I mean, I'd written like a dozen screenplays and I had, uh, uh, fanboys is the only one that's been made, but I've sold several other screenplays. Uh, uh, and that, 
you know, encouraged me that I could make a living as a writer. But, you know, like, like Thundercade was a script that I wrote that just never got produced and no one's read it. And, and uh, unlike a novel, you know, like people would already have, if I'd written it as a novel first, people would uh, uh, have already read that story. But the, the, so that, I mean, just the, and fanboys, you know, like it occurred to me if I had written fanboys as a novel, then, you know, the story as I intended it would have existed in a form that people could read. But now all that will exist, you know, really, unless people dig up some early, early drafts of the screenplay to compare them is just the final movie as it is. And it has my name as, as, uh, you know, one of the writers on it. Uh, even though I didn't, you know, really have control over the final product. So anyhow, that, uh, but the, uh, uh, writing Ready Player One, that was just one of many ideas that I had that I thought might be a, a a movie initially. But then once I came up with the idea of, you know, what if Willy Wonka was a video game designer? And what if he held his golden ticket, you know, contest inside his greatest video game creation? When I had that idea, that was the initial kernel of the idea, but I didn't, you know, uh, uh, I continued to develop it, but I didn't really get going until I started to figure out what would all the riddles and puzzles and clues that this uh, eccentric video game designer would leave behind to find a worthy successor, uh, what would they be? And once I realized, oh, they could be about all the different, you know, uh, pop culture of his life, I thought about video game designers and computer programmers that I knew, and they're all kind of geeky guys who loved Monty Python and, you know, loved all the stuff that I loved, Dungeons and Dragons, like I had video game developers who were friends, and and if you, like the, you know, the more successful the video game developer often, like the bigger the, you know, the bigger the geek. And I often think like the eccentric billionaire in my story is half kind of Willy Wonka, maybe one third Willy Wonka, one third Howard Hughes and, and one third, um, uh, Richard Garriott, who's a local, uh, game designer who used to live here in Austin where I live, um, who, uh, invented all the Ultima games. And he had like an online, uh, in game persona, Lord British that he would cosplay as at conventions and, uh, you know, and he had a mansion outside of Austin with all these secret passages and, you know, vampire hunting kits and other strange things. He's one of the, he's the video game designer who used, eventually used his money to buy a ticket to go into space. Um, so he was a real example to me of like what a geek with a lot of money and resources, uh, could accomplish. And so that I, I threw all that into the, the character of James Halliday and creating the story. And then once I had that idea of, you know, all, uh, I, for kind of using, uh, the pop culture of my life as the, you know, the, the ancient mythology, you know, in my Indiana Jones story, um, then it became really fun for me to, to sit down and, and work on it. And I think that's the only reason I finished the book. You know, it took me years of kind of writing in my spare time and, uh, working, you know, working a full-time day job in front of a computer and then coming home and trying to get back in front of a computer to work on my story. And I would stop and, you know, write other screenplays and then come back to it. And, uh, but it was always, I always believed in it and I was, you know, uh, knew that I wanted to finish it. It just took a long time and it was a really <laughs> insanely ambitious first novel that, you know, not just a few characters, you know, and, but like a, a giant kind of sprawling stage to tell a first novel. And so it took me a long time to finish it. And even by the time I, you know, as I refined the idea, I also realized it probably couldn't be a movie because of all the, if I wanted to weave all this pop culture into the story, like you can do that in fiction, but in a movie, you know, to use a, a movie, another movie or a song or anything in your story, you, you're actually reproducing it. So you, ha- you know, you have to, um, get the rights for it. But in a book, you can have any soundtrack you want and you can have any painting you want hanging on the wall. And, you know, you can still do a lot of things in fiction with no budget that you can't, you know, couldn't even do in a, in a big budget Hollywood movie. So it was really liberating to, uh, and like you said, I could geek out as much as I wanted and not have anybody, any producer or anything telling me that they didn't get it or to take it out. I could just be as obscure as I wanted and, 
and uh and you know uh and just i was just writing to try to please myself and uh uh and see if i could do it and then when i you know when i finally finished it i already had an agent uh, uh and a manager uh, because of uh, uh and i was in the writers guild because of fanboys so that uh, helped me find a, a book agent a lit agent in new york and um uh uh, and then, you know, everything, and then everything you could ever want to happen happened to me once, uh, the, uh, uh, Ready Player One got out into the world. You know, there was a bidding war over the book rights and then, uh, uh, and then this very next day over the film rights. Uh, so that my whole life changed in that 48 hours, you know, for a book, I wasn't even sure I could get published when I was done. I wasn't sure if you could have Mechagodzilla fight Ultraman in your book and not get sued. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. So, so that brings us to your new novel now, Armada. Just tell us a bit about, you, you said there, there must be a lot of pressure, right, on you after that huge success of Ready Player One to write a, a follow-up. Uh, just tell us about, like, how'd you come up with the idea and what was it like uh, trying to follow up Ready Player One? Yeah, it was a lot of pressure. I would listen to that Billy Joel uh, song uh, uh, and also the the David Bowie Queen under pressure a lot <laughs> just to, like, keep things in perspective. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like, to my... Ready Player One was to run away success and just continue to get bigger and more, you know, uh, 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 and more popular as time went on, uh, even while I was, uh, working on, uh, Armada. And Armada had been an idea that I'd had kicking around for a long time, uh, that I thought might be a screenplay. But, um, again, it was like, uh, like with Ready Player One, there was like an element, uh, there were elements that missing and it didn't feel like, uh, fully fleshed out, uh, idea until I started to, like, um, Combine the, uh, mixed in the idea of quantum data teleportation, which was something I had just started reading, uh, at the time. I, like, I, I, uh, uh, I don't know. It's always hard to, uh, synopsize where the, where the idea from, uh, Armada initially came from, but I think it has its origins in this game Battlezone, uh, that Atari put out in 1980 that I read this article about in an early computer magazine in the early 80s, because in 1980, like, it was a, it was a groundbreaking game, one of the first games with kind of 3D graphics. They were vector 3D graphics, but you could move around this 3D landscape. And it was a tank game, uh, and it was so realistic uh, that the U.S. Army uh, saw its potential as an actual tank training simulator, and they bought Battlezone from Atari, and then paid the original programmer Ed Rotberg to reprogram it and modify it into a a training simulator called Bradley Trainer uh, to. Uh, teach real soldiers how to operate the new Bradley fighting vehicle, this light armor tank the army had just introduced. And they, he made a prototype and it, uh, uh, and so I remember reading this, uh, they never followed through on it, but just the idea that the army had already explored as early as 1980, like three or four years after the birth of video games, they were already could see the potential of them as a training simulator. So that, uh, like, knowing that, like, Battlezone could really teach me to, like, operate a tank to some degree, that had a powerful effect on my 10-year-old uh, brain when I read about that. And then, um, uh, and I was already, you know, a child of Star Wars, so I grew up, you know, building cockpits out of uh, uh, couch cushions in front of my television and uh and wanting to be, you know, Luke Skywalker, I would play those first-person shooters like Starfire or Star Raiders or Star Master uh, or Starship where you had like a first-person cockpit view in your television. And I would like think of that as like a Starship simulator, you know, uh, 
in my living room and pretend that I was Luke Skywalker, you know, and uh, uh, even before there was a Star Wars game, uh, you know, and the games at the arcade, I love those too, where they were like cockpit simulators. You would climb into it and it would make you feel like you were getting into a X-Wing. So I always, you know, I think I spent my whole youth imagining, you know, what if, you know, I was really controlling a ship somewhere? What if I, uh, uh, you know, was actually training? And then when I saw, you know, The Last Starfighter, I, I was just one of my favorite movies. I went and saw that again and again. And I would, just like with Star Wars, I would go down in the lobby and play video games uh, to recapture that feeling of being in the movie. And uh, and I think I read Ender's Game right around the same time. Ender's Game was published as a novel in 1985. Um, but it uh, began as a short story uh, uh, that I think was published in 1977, the same year Star Wars came out, the year before Space Invaders came out. So I was, I was, and the Ender's Game short story is very similar to the novel. This, uh, uh, and in the short story as well, like part of Ender's training is not just the battle room, but also some early like video, uh, video game uh, simulations of combat. And uh, so that idea, you know, I love that idea of video games being used as a, uh, as a training simulation. But uh, when I got the idea for Armada was, it occurred to me that I had never seen that idea um, used with drones, like the idea of, of a video game being used to train someone to control a drone, which is rel- something relatively new, you know, in our military, but it's become more and more over the past five, six years drones have become uh, like a huge part of our air force. I saw that they just announced they were going to make Top Gun part two with Tom Cruise. And it's all about Maverick as a drone pilot, because that's what's, mm-hmm. uh, ha- that's what's happening in, in military aviation now. And um, as soon as I had that idea, and also my brother is a, a Marine, uh, an explosive ordnance disposal technician, uh, like a bomb tech, and they use drones uh, as well that are bomb kind of, tracked uh robots with hands uh, articulated hands that allow them to disarm you know ieds or or uh shells and things from a distance so that if you know it goes off they're not nearby which is so it's basically a telepresence robot kind of like the aerial drones that we use and the controls for both the aerial drones and the uh ground force drones look like video game controllers like xbox controllers to uh, uh because they, and they do that on purpose because it lowers the learning curve for the soldiers because they've all grown up playing Xbox games. So once I um, kind of combined, you know, all my love of Star Wars, Ender's Game, Buck Rogers, Battlestar Galactica, you know, all that science fiction that I grew up in playing video games to simulate it. Um, and then the idea of drones, uh, uh, video gamers using their game consoles to control drones married with this idea of quantum data teleportation, which is using Einstein's spooky action at a distance to transmit data losslessly over infinite space. So you wouldn't have to use radio waves and like send a space probe out and like wait 30 minutes for the signal to get there and back. You could control it instantaneously. Uh, And as soon as I had kind of those three ideas, uh, then I had the idea of what if the video gamers of Earth could use their video game consoles and all their other gaming platforms, their PCs and their tablets and their phones to control like an army of drones to fight off an alien invasion. That's an idea that I'd never seen in fiction or in movies or anywhere. And it's such a, it's such a natural idea because you sit down and play a video game. You want those video game skills to have some sort of real world value. So the fantasy of, you know, everybody in the world getting to use all their video game skills and the fact that all of the, you know, uh, all the science fiction movies and Star Wars and all the video games, you know, uh, that we grew up, that I grew up playing, like I wove those into the story and made them part of the conspiracy and part of the training and part of the, you know, preparation 
uh, by the uh, government to prepare our hearts and minds, you know, to be prepared for an alien invasion. Because if an alien invasion did happen tomorrow, we would all, you know, we wouldn't be prepared for it uh, completely, but we would have all these expectations based on, you know, 40 or 50 years of, you know, War of the Worlds and V and Dark Skies and everything else. You have all these preconceived notions about, you know, Independence Day style alien invasion. Uh, uh, and, you know, what if the real thing, you know, uh, went down that way, then you would be like, well, this is like Independence Day. You know, this, it would be strange. And, and you would, you know, I've never seen an alien invasion movie where everybody in it has seen all the alien invasion movies that I've seen. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do a story like that too. And, uh, uh, and now, you know, and I, I, I still, you know, I think it's a, uh, the idea has a lot of, uh, immediacy and it involves virtual reality too, especially if like flight simulators, playing a flight simulator on the Oculus Rift will blow your mind because it's, you know, you're not pretending to fly the ship through a two-dimensional window anymore. Uh, and now you can look out over your wing and, you know, and track planes behind you. And uh, so all of that was fun to weave into the story. Well, yeah, so you mentioned that in the story, the U.S. government has been funding the science fiction video game and movie genre as a way of preparing the population for an actual alien invasion that they know is coming. And I don't know if you know Tim Powers, but he writes all these secret history kind of novels. And he said that when you start doing research and you start making up your own conspiracy theory, you get to the point where you start noticing things where you start to wonder like, wait, am I onto something here? Is this real? <laughs> well, I mean, for me, like I, uh, it was a natural thing. Cause I, I dressed up as Luke Skywalker, like three Halloweens in a row, I think, because I wanted to be Luke Skywalker so bad. And if you're a five-year-old kid, like seeing star Wars, like, you know, there would be no better propaganda. Like I was ready to go fight aliens or, you know, uh, and along with Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica, it, like seemed like, you know, a whole generation uh, around the world was, you know, uh, being primed to, you know, want to fight aliens or go into outer space. And a lot of people, you know, between Star Wars and Star Trek were drawn to, you know, work in the, uh, the sciences or the space industry. But, yeah, but me specifically, I just wanted to kill aliens, you know, uh, in a cockpit of, uh, uh, of an X-Wing or like a Buck Rogers Thunder Fighter. So I, uh, so it was more fun to imagine that as a conspiracy, but I did, you know, do a lot of, uh, uh, I did do a lot of research into alien, you know, conspiracy theories and Roswell and all of that. And, uh, uh, I remember being struck by, uh, this one film that was really pr uh, pretty well made, Mirage Men, um, where, uh, like an ex government disinformation, uh, agent talks about how, uh, a lot of people believe that's, that, uh, aliens came down and met the U.S. government in a situation, members of the U.S. government in a scenario very much like the one depicted in Close Encounters of the Third mm -hmm. Kind. And that one of the reasons uh, that that movie ended up getting made is because uh, by making a movie, uh, uh, then everybody, if you told the real story, people would say, oh, that's just like closer to the counter to the third <laughs> kind. And then it immediately discredits them, you know, because it makes you seem like a And it would, you know, and, and, and that idea, uh, you know, uh, stuck with me. Like if you, uh, no, no one would ever believe it was true if you pointed it out, which would just help it work, uh, you know, help the conspiracy work even better. Mm -hmm. Well, then another really interesting thing in this book is that the main character, Zach, knows enough about science to know that the alien invasions depicted in science fiction movies like Independence Day don't really make sense, uh, and that the alien invasion he's facing in this book doesn't actually make sense. Could you talk about what some of the things are that don't make sense about the alien invasions that we see depicted in pop culture? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, like uh, one of them that occurs to me now is like, why would you send you know, um, why wouldn't you use, why wouldn't the aliens use drones? You know, uh, when I watch Star Wars now, like, why aren't they using drones? You know, if they can have real time holographic phone calls between planets, uh, faster than light, you know, uh, uh, speeds, then that's enough information clearly to make a remote control X-wing or, 
TIE fighter. You do not need to send Porkins in down to <laughs> die, you know, uh, senselessly. So, uh, you know, now when I watch any movie where somebody's climbing into a ship, you know, to go uh, into a dangerous, I mean, it makes sense for the movie, but does it make sense from a scientific, you know, uh, standpoint, they would, if you could make drones to do it, then you would use drones. And I, so I'd never seen that idea, like, uh, drones sent to do an alien invasion. In most alien invasion stories, it's like Independence Day. They're not using drones. They're sending down, you know, uh, they're putting real people in real ships to go down and, and die to try to take over the planet. And in, you know, movies like V or Independence Day, uh, they're always kind of, um, one, they're going, they're going to construct, conduct, you know, either some sort of subterfuge to win our trust and then take us over. Or they just, uh, it's like Battleship or, um, Battle Los Angeles, you know, where they just, or Independence Day, uh, or War of the Worlds, where they just come down and they begin to, like, conduct a World War II style ground invasion, uh, against us, you know, with ship to ship combat. And it's cause it's all really great and cinematic and a lot like Star Wars. But from, you know, why would the aliens do that? They could just hurl a meteor at Earth if they wanted to to exterminate us or why do they even come to earth to begin with always the idea of like earth is this perfect uh perfect rare blue world but it's perfect for us because we evolved to live here but for any other alien like they always have to terraform earth well why not terraform a lifeless rock you know that's not inhabited by a bunch of nuke wielding uh uh monkey boys who are going to fight back you know and they always you know they always conduct their uh alien invasions in a way that uh just doesn't make sense for a uh Highly, not only did the invasion itself and the motives for it often not make sense, but just there are so many alternatives. If they could, you know, if a, an intelligent species has the technology to travel light years across interstellar space with these massive, uh, warships, then, you know, they're, they, they've probably reached the singularity and then they would be beyond the need for, you know, uh, uh, anything that we have. So. But it's just fun. I never see characters stop and talk about any of this in an alien invasion movie because they're you know too busy chasing, running from explosions. Which I get. I love those movies too. But I never I've, I never seen like a uh, uh, it's called genre aware where the characters are aware of kind of the genre that they're in and then they you know uh, not that they're trapped in a movie but you know if they see things that happen like they would in a movie you would point that out like this is not how real life you know uh, would go. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say a bit more about the characters in this book. I mentioned there's the protagonist, Zach Lightman, and then his his dad is Xavier, who is a big video game fanatic who's been missing for years. Um, I was wondering, do, do you see, is, is Xavier kind of you? And does he have all your same video game tastes and music tastes, or is he different from you in any way? Uh, he's kind of based on my brother, my younger brother, uh, uh, Eric, who's a year younger than me. Uh, and like a foot taller and he's a, uh, he's a major now in the Marine Corps. He joined the Marines when he was like 20 or 19 as like a grunt private and then worked his way all up. So, and he's, you know, uh, been deployed in, you know, all the major conflicts we've had over the past uh, couple decades. And I saw him, you know, and he also became a father during that time. And I, uh, and, and I saw, I saw him become kind of a weary, you know, uh, battle, uh, battle veteran and also a father at the same time and have to spend kind of long stretches away. Uh, from his son and how hard that was on, on both of them and how in some ways, like the, the modern technology that we have makes that harder on soldiers. The fact that they can, you know, they'll, they'll be in a battle, uh, during the day and then they'll come home and get on FaceTime and, you know, and have to hear about the phone bill and, you know, the grade port, uh, uh, the grade card and everything else going on at home. They can't keep, you know, home and war separate anymore because of uh because of technology um and so all so the when i think about zach and his brother i think about uh my brother and my and my nephew they, they and they're thanked at the 
at the back end, the book is dedicated to my brother. He and I grew up, you know, playing video games together and going to arcades. And, and, uh, he's, you know, uh, he's a lot, I think, I think Xavier, uh, is a lot more like him than, than me. Well, and then speaking of real people who appear in this book, there are a bunch of real scientists who appear in this book, including Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's true. Yeah. Uh, we, and I hope they don't come after me or their estates don't come after <laughs> me. You know, I, I, I love all those guys. And when I was, you know, there's an armistice council uh, uh, in the book uh, that's a, a kind of a panel of science, prominent scientists who are tasked with uh, trying to uh, achieve uh, or, or negotiate peace with the aliens uh, in the story, the alien invaders, but the alien invaders aren't really talking, you know, and, and, uh, and the armistice council isn't given, you know, all the information that they need uh, to actually do their job. So, um, uh, but I, you know, instead of making up fake scientist names, I thought, you know, uh, to, it always makes the story feel more real, you know, if real people, uh, are in it. And all those, uh, people that I named, uh, were people whose books I had read, uh, while I was researching, uh, Armada or, you know, whose work I had, uh, uh, studied, uh, especially the, uh, Jill Tarter and Seth Shostak, the SETI scientists. I have been a SETI kind of fanboy for over a decade and those are, uh, two of my favorite SETI scientists, Jill Tarter, served as the inspiration for Ellen Arroway, Jodie Foster's character in Carl Sagan's Contact. So I thought it would be cool to pay tribute to her. I had to have Stephen Hawking in there. I love the idea of Stephen Hawking, like uh, uh, also like being a drone pilot. I have him like kicking a <laughs> kicking ass a little bit, uh, just because I love that idea. He's he's such a badass. <laughs> And then you also have real video game designers. The, this fictional video game in the book was made by this unbelievable all-star team of video game designers, including Chris Roberts and Shigeru Miyamoto, Richard Garriott, just uh, yeah. Gabe Newell. It's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but those guys, you know, like if, uh, uh, and I love the idea, Richard Garriott especially, since he went into space, I, <laughs> I had a little bit like more about how his trip into space was part of the conspiracy, but that was too, uh, that was too insider. But he, uh, but all those guys, like, uh, I have, been instrumental in uh, uh, building the amazing video game industry that uh, that we all enjoy now, and I wanted to you know pay tribute to each of them and and uh, put them on the the side of good. If you know if the scenario uh, described in the book actually did go down, I think all those guys would be on the front lines. Well, it, it's funny because just reading the acknowledgments of this book, it's like a greatest hits list of our uh, guests over the years or something. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Patrick Rothfuss, John Scalzi, Felicia Day. Daniel H. Wilson, Richard Garriott. I mean, are these all people? How do you, do you know all these people? Or they're all yeah, you yeah. Like, how, did, how did that come come about? Uh, well, Richard Garriott, I you know I've kind of met them all as a result of writing Ready Player One. Uh, they've either reached out to me, or I, I think I, I met Felicia through Will Wheaton, who uh, does uh, reads the audiobooks of both Ready Player One and Armada. Uh, Richard Garriott, I met because he you know uh, he actually helped me do the Ready Player One uh, Easter egg hunt contest for the paperback. I went and I reached out to him. Uh, and he knew that he had been, in, you know, he was mentioned in Ready Player One too, and, and inspired the uh, story. Um, uh, uh, yeah, and John Scalzi, you know, I met. Uh, uh, he came to my uh, book signing in Cincinnati, and we've been uh, uh, on the on my hardcover tour for Ready Player One, and we've been uh, friends ever since. I'm, you know, so lucky. All these people that I'm huge fans of and whose work I really loved and respected, I've, you know, uh, uh, gotten to know them as friends. And uh, uh, Felicia Day sent me her book, uh, early copy of her book, uh, which is fantastic and comes out, I think, next month. And so you mentioned Will Wheaton did the audiobook. What, could you just talk about what that experience was like? Were you involved with that at all? Or just what was oh, it like yeah, having was, him? Yeah, they wanted, they asked, I had done spoken word performance and, and public speaking and stuff before, and they offered to let me uh, 
try to read the audiobook, but I'm not an actor. And all my favorite audiobooks are always done by uh, like an actor who brings the story to life. And I always, you know, had Will Wheaton in mind because of Stand By Me and uh, uh, Next Generation. I love uh, Will's writing too. He's uh, He used to write a column for the onion i think called games of our lives where he would review old atari games and they're just hysterical and like you know it became clear to me reading will's writing that even though you know he grew up uh uh, on a television show he's uh he had the same childhood you know he was he told me he used to play gurps and you know program his home computer in his dressing room uh, uh on the paramount lot when he was playing wesley crusher so and he's about a month apart from me in age, so I knew he would just be perfect. And he, you know, he blew everybody away. Uh, and exceed- that's become one of the best-selling audiobooks uh, in history because of his performance. He brings all the characters to life, and uh, uh, he does the Pac-Man sounds, and the, <laughs> uh, you know. And I just got to finish listening to him do Armada uh, uh, this past weekend, and it's amazing. Once again, he just he does you know Patrick Stewart impressions and uh, video game sounds and uh, uh, jumps and then also just brings my characters to life. He'll do like there's one conversation where he's doing like eight voices, eight different characters at once and jumping in and out of different characters and it's like uh, it's just amazing. He's such a talented guy and I'd uh, I'd heard him do some of John Scalzi's audiobooks too, so I knew he was he would be amazing. And uh, uh, so yeah, every probably every book I ever write, I'm gonna see if I can get Will. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about is I watched this documentary recently called Atari Game Over, and yeah. you appeared in that. And it's just funny because, you know, you're going to go on this, you're going you're gonna to do this pilgrimage with your DeLorean that you have to pick it up from George R. R. Martin's house. And it's just <laughs> funny. I'm just wondering what the story is behind all that. Uh, that was the craziest, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, perfect storm, uh, right? Uh, I had always... You know, like uh, one of the big urban legends that, uh, like the two biggest video game urban legends, I think, in history are uh, E.T. cartridges buried in the desert and uh, Polybius. And Polybius is one that I like weave into our, our armada, like strange mind control video game that was seen for a few weeks and then never seen again. But the E.T. cartridge, and I knew that was probably not true, but the E.T. cartridges in the desert, like the more research and you know, more I heard about it, uh, and working, uh, like I, I'm a big part of like Atari collector online communities. So I knew that there was like proof and articles that it had really happened. Uh, uh, and then, um, it was strange, right? As around the time that, uh, uh, I was hearing that they were finally going to do this, make this documentary and actually dig up these Atari games. Um, uh, Zach Penn, who is making that documentary, uh, is also a screenwriter who's written a bunch of the X-Men movies and last action hero. He, uh, uh, he got hired to uh, do a pass on the Ready Player One script. Uh, and so right as he was getting hired to work on Ready Player One, uh, he was also doing uh, gearing up to do this Atari documentary. And he called me up and we talked about both. You know, We talked about Ready Player One. Then he's like, hey, you know, I'm doing this documentary and uh, reading the book. It's clear that you're a huge Atari fan because there's all this stuff about adventure and Atari. And he's like, would you like to come maybe down and be a part of this documentary? And uh, and when he asked me that, like I was like, oh, you know, I'd... Uh, <laughs> Uh, George R. R. Martin, I had met, uh, at a convention, uh, uh, here in Texas, uh, the year before, and he had sat in my DeLorean and we had become friends. I interviewed him at a panel and, uh, and he had asked me to borrow my DeLorean. He owns a movie theater in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where he lives. And he, uh, was going to show back to the future. And he's like, I know a guy with a DeLorean. So <laughs> he called me up, which is like the best phone call ever. Uh, and he's like, Hey, I'm showing back to the future, my movie theater. I wondered if you would bring your DeLorean, you know, if I could borrow it for, uh, for the weekend. And I'm like, can I tell people <laughs> that you're borrowing it? And he said, yes. And I'm like, oh, done, you know, the car value of my car just 
increased. So I gave it, I drew, flew it out there and, uh, or drove it out there and left it with him. And then, uh, uh, and he had it for like three or four, uh, weeks. And then when Zach Pan called me and, uh, uh, and asked me if I wanted to come down for the ET Atari dig, I realized that my DeLorean was already in Santa Fe and that I could just fly into Santa Fe, pick up my time machine from George R. R. Martin, and that I could drive down to Alamogordo. And that on the way to Alamogordo, I could stop at the Very Large Array where they shot Contact and uh, also visit Roswell. Like uh, New Mexico has got a lot of cool stuff uh, scattered across the <laughs> that desert wasteland. So I, uh, uh, yeah, and then I got to go drive down there and be there for the Atari uh, uh, graveyard excavation, and and I got to meet Zach and become friends with him, which was great because then you know we talked all through his his work on the Ready Player One uh, uh, screenplay. So it was just it was like one of the greatest adventures ever. And my you know my buddy Mike Micah uh, came down, and he's uh, actually the guy who was helped helped me make video games for both uh, Ready Player One and Armada, and they're available online. Hmm, cool. Okay, and so then just finally, you've mentioned that Ready Player One and also Armada are being adapted into movies. You have some other screenplays you've written. Could you just give us a sort of an update on what the status is of your various film projects? Well, Armada, uh, I just finished uh, the book right before uh, uh, the tour starts, and I'm uh, uh, working on the screenplay adaptation right now. I'm trying to get the first draft done uh, before I leave on tour later this week. And then... Uh, so that, you know, but Universal's really excited about that, uh, uh, to make it into a movie. And, uh, they've kind of been chomping at the bit for me to, to get finished. So I'm excited, uh, you know, I'm excited to get to kind of do my own gamer version of Star Wars, but even though I have to go up against all these Star Wars movies. Uh, and then, uh, Ready Player One, uh, uh, I'm told Zach is like finishing up his final changes for Mr. Spielberg on the script and that they are gearing up for, uh, like pre-production this fall and then maybe we'd shoot next year, shoot the movie next year and it would be out sometime in 2017. That's all just a gross estimation from my perspective, but that's, uh, that's kind of, uh, what I'm hearing, which would be amazing. That would mean like this time next year, I could be on the set of Ready Player One movie directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I also heard you say you have a, it was like a classic arcade gamers versus Xbox gamers script that you would. Yeah, write. that was Thundercade. That was Thundercade, which I sold to Lakeshore Entertainment. Uh, but then uh, they ended up uh, not being able to uh, get it made, and the rights reverted back to me. So that's like just one of the screenplays that I've written that I own, along with like a half a, a dozen that is in various stages of development. I think I, you know, I might still make it someday. But uh, but other movies have since kind of used that same idea. So I don't know if it would be as fresh as when I wrote it. Like I don't want to say almost uh, eight years ago. So I might revisit it someday. All right, cool. So we're pretty much out of time. So just finally, are there any other projects you want to mention? Any anything else? Any blog posts or anything you've written that you want to point people to? No, nope. Uh, you could just if you just go to armadabook dot com, you can see a list of all my uh, uh, upcoming book tour dates. Uh, I'm like traveling all up and down the West Coast, uh, from San Diego to I'll be in San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, and then here in Austin. And also, uh, I'm just traveling all through the Midwest and I'm doing the, my final signing is, uh, to like, uh, the Barnes Noble, in, uh, in New York City, Union Square. So it's going to be, uh, so, if, uh, yeah, I'd love for people to come out. All right. Great. So we've been speaking with Ernest Klein and this new book is called Armada. So Ernie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Ernest Klein for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Adam Templer in Canada. And special thanks as well to Chad, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, 
please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.